Welcome to the Brand Design Masters podcast, the show dedicated to helping you build the skills you need to design bulletproof brands for yourself, your business, and for the clients and customers you serve. And now, here's Philip. The following podcast comes from a live stream I did recently. Many of you have requested that I make my live streams available as audio so you can listen to them on the go. So I am now republishing some of my most popular live streams as podcasts to make that possible. I share a boatload of valuable tips, tools, methods, and processes on my live streams, and I want to make sure that you don't miss a thing. Now, you may hear me make references to slide visuals, which you obviously can't see on a podcast, or to live stream viewers' comments and questions, but that just comes with the territory and generally won't detract from the value of the content, I assure you. And as always, if you like this episode, please take a moment to provide a star rating or review on your favorite podcast listening platform, or better yet, share the episode on social or with a friend or a colleague. And with that, let's jump into the episode. Hey, everybody. I'm super stoked to tell you about analysis paralysis. And it's because one of those things that we all, I think all creatives suffer from it to a certain extent. Have you struggled with this before? I know I have. And I'm actually going to share with you a couple hacks for very kind of quickly reframing your brain around analysis paralysis and also a seven-step process for how you can power on through that. So I want you to stay with me because that's towards the end of the presentation. So let's talk about this a little bit. Here's a personal story around analysis paralysis. Kind of way back when I was just starting Um, my career as a designer in the industry for corporate, I had the very fortunate occurrence of having at one time three job offers on the table. And it was pretty amazing. I was living in New York City at the time in Brooklyn, and I had a job offer on the table from Nike to be a designer at Nike out in Oregon. And I had flown out there, interviewed. I was super stoked to have that (laughs) offer on the table. I also had an offer on the table to be a senior designer at Old Navy, which at the time was only about two years old. And it was just absolutely exploding on the scene. And it was in the fashion industry, which I'd kind of grown up in. And so I had an offer on the table from them as well. And that was in New York City and the product development offices of New York City. And Then I also had an offer from an Australian company to be a creative director, which was a higher title, obviously, someone who'd just been, I'd been an art director for a while, but this was with an agency, a packaging agency, but they were in Australia and it was going to be a remote job. And one of the aspects of this job was I was going to actually have to be up at like four in the morning, one day a week to do a company agency-wide call and to connect with the team on Australia time. So that was going to be a struggle. So this was one of those times when I had a serious, serious kind of decision I had to make on my hands, and it was a very important decision. And one of the ways that I handled that was I put together a pro and con list, and I proed and con like the move, the title, the job, the salary, all of the aspects of like what it was going to do to my life and my family life and my personal life. And I weighted them. So, you know, salary was important. Title was important. Having to move, you know, was massively important and they were going to pay for that. But, and also Nike was a big name. Old Navy at the time wasn't that big a name. So Nike was like carrying a lot of weight. But the funny thing is, is that in the very end, it came down to a girl. 
<laughs> it came down to the fact that I had just started dating somebody in New York City, and it was serious. And the really funny thing is, is that this girl at the time, young woman who I was dating, actually ended up turning out to be my wife. And uh, so it's a very good, very good decision that I made to stay in New York City and to take a job with Old Navy, which I did. I also ended up staying with Old Navy for 11 years and went from a senior designer up to a vice president of design over five different divisions, had a very, very successful career there. So it turned out to be a good decision. And that pro and con list really, really helped. But ultimately, it came down to something that was not... Actually, the relationship was on the pro and con list, and it was on the side of Old Navy staying in uh, New York City. But anyway... So just thought I'd share that little bit of insight into one of the biggest decisions I made in my life that had incredible consequences for me. And I'm still married to my wife. And so we've been married over, I think, 24 years now. All right, let's talk about it. And so we are going to talk about analysis paralysis. Analysis paralysis, I have found, really affects creative professionals a lot. So what are we going to be going through today? We're going to talk about what analysis paralysis is. There are costs, as you know, there are costs to indecision, like things can go bad. And we're going to talk about what some of those costs are and also where analysis paralysis stems from and how it manifests itself. And there's also kind of two kind of key hacks that I told you about that I have personally found and used to kind of reset my brain around having to make decisions. And then there's this seven-step process to overcome it that we'll get into real nitty-gritty at the end. All right, so first of all, what is analysis paralysis? Basically, it comes down to being unable to make a decision in a timely way. And here's some examples. So you may have to make a decision around a design that you're working on. <laughs> this is one of the ones where it's like incredibly time-consuming in terms of cost choosing a font. Like I have a really hard time like centering down on choosing fonts on designs because A, there's so many of them and B, they mean so much to a design. So you could have trouble making decisions around your portfolio, what pieces to include, what to put on your website. It could be a business decision, what SaaS product to use to run your financial software. It could be content, like, you know, deciding on whether you're going to post this as a video or how are you going to edit it? Creative decisions could be a job decision like the one that I just shared about very early on in my career, that very consequential job decision. It could be around how you price your design work. That's something that a lot of creatives struggle with is like, how do I price my work and how do I communicate why my work is priced the way that it is? It could be how, what's your copywriting on your website. It could be, you know, what kind of clients am I going to go after? What kind of niche of clients am I going after? It could be like, what computer am I going to buy? Like, is it a MacBook Air or a iMac or like, what am I going to get? 10 million decisions that you need to make every single day, right? And it can be debilitating in some cases. Some decisions are very easy, but some are deceptively hard, like choosing a font, like I said. And so why is it bad for creative people more than anybody else? I think it is, for one thing, we make creative decisions, and creative decisions are very rarely black and white. There's a lot of nuance. There's a lot of, you know, variables or 
uncertainties around doing creative work, especially professional creative work in the business world. And also creatives, I think, have a tendency to see things more in shades of gray than black and white. Like numbers people, finance people, they see things in black and white. I've known a lot of people who are in account management, strategy, who see things in black and white. Creatives, we are a very emotional population, for one. And we can be driven very much by our emotions. And I, and I think that we see things a lot of times in nuance, in shades of gray. And another thing I think the creatives suffer from is that we also, in many cases, don't have the kind of support networks to get feedback that others may have. Or we don't nurture them, our relationships, our networks, to service us and our decision-making in the way of helping us get perspective and make actual decisions. And again, I'm going to circle back on that a little bit as I talk about Bonfire, is that building those meaningful networks where you can really get people, build relationships with people that you trust, whose perspectives and skill sets and experience that you can really trust in terms of giving you feedback that you can use to make the decisions that you need to make. Now, let's talk about the costs. <laughs> what are the costs of indecision? Why is it a problem when you can't make a decision? First of all, there's opportunity cost. Opportunity cost is defined as not being able to make a decision that could affect something that could be a potential gain. So like I said, choosing what job you're going to choose if you have multiple offers choosing who your partners are going to be, who you're going to work with, choosing the clients, whether you're going to accept a client or not, or what kind of clients to go after, or maybe you're investing in something, some, a new computer or you know, a software product or a mastermind group. And if there's a missed opportunity because you missed a decision or weighed that decision or got stuck in this tape loop cycle of, of not being able to make a decision where you lost the opportunity, and so opportunity costs is probably the number one. Number two is time cost. And time cost is what happens when you get stuck in that tape loop. It's overthinking eats away at precious time. This is precious time that could be used acting on the decision that you make, or it could be time spent doing other stuff, doing creative stuff, learning, thinking, planning, relaxing, right? <laughs> Meditating. So Time cost is another aspect, and we're going to get into the time cost and where that stems from and why that is a little more in just a little bit. And then there's the mental toll, and this is probably the biggest thing and probably why most people are here right now is that there is a huge mental toll to analysis paralysis, and it just eats away at you, and it's painful, and you think you are doing the right thing by weighing the pros and cons. But it becomes a time sink and it eats away at your self-worth. It eats away at your confidence. It eats away at your time, how you feel people view you, your own kind of sense of surety and the path that you are taking in your life. And so the mental toll of analysis paralysis is huge. So those are just a few of the costs of indecision. Now let's talk about the reasons. So why is this happening? And there's a whole lot of reasons people don't make decisions. And here's just four of them. So there's 
fear of failure. It doesn't have to be fear of failure. It could be fear of success. Say you got a speaking opportunity and you're going to speak at a conference. It could be fear of failure that you're not going to do a great job. It also could be fear of success like, I don't know if I'm ready to speak on a stage with a whole bunch of people looking at me. And while that's an opportunity and a, you know, showing a level of success that you've gained to be offered that opportunity, there can be fear of success within that too. It could be that you're taking the wrong path, for instance, in the job decision. Like, am I taking the wrong path by going and working for an agency rather than a fashion company after I've been in fashion forever? So there could be the finality of it. Some decisions that we make are final. Very few actually turn out to be. But there could be the, the mental weight of the finality of a decision. Then number two, kind of another reason is perfectionism. And we're going to dig into perfectionism a little bit more too. And that is wanting to make the absolute perfect decision. There's also number three is choice overload. So that's having just too many things to weigh, too much analysis to to kind of sort through, to weigh. And then number four is kind of, again, this lack of perspective. It's not having the, what you deem to be the correct level of experience to make the decision. Or you are stuck in this whirlwind and tornado of pros and cons and ideas and too much going on to be able to make the decision. And you need to have some help in order to zoom out and look at it in kind of a different way. And when it comes down to it, analysis paralysis is essentially a war. <laughs> it's like this tug of war. It's a push me, pull you, right? Between the conscious and the unconscious mind. It's the analytical and the emotional. So there's this rational, conscious, reasoning mind that wants to take the data and make sense of it and have that drive the decision. And then there's the unconscious impulsive mind, which is the emotional side of it, which is what drives the fear and the uncertainty and, and the spin and the emotional toll. And also, in some cases, you're taking the analytics, the conscious part, the data, and then you're also having to weigh the emotions around it. So you're having to weigh, like, does this choice that I'm thinking about making on the data feel right. And this is where I think creatives, again, suffer from this pretty heavily because we are so sensitive and we are so in touch with kind of our emotional selves a lot of the times that we may get pulled into a whirlwind of emotional aspect, this unconscious side of the decision-making process, this tug of war, uh, unnecessarily or overly so in comparison to the more kind of conscious analytical side of our mind. So let's talk about part one of analysis paralysis, the word analysis. So analysis is overanalyzing, right? So it's analyzing. And so the paralysis part is the too much analyzing. And this, to a certain extent, kind of manifests itself in a loop, what I like to call kind of a tape loop or circular thinking. And this circular thinking is, here's the data, here's how I feel about it, here's all my choices, and let's weigh the data, let's see how we feel about it, maybe we got to think about the choices again, 
And it just starts in this whole circle, right? And it goes around and around and around. And you may learn more data or you may have a new feeling that pops up or you start questioning your feelings. And what this is, the analysis is, the, the conscious brain part of it is that we're trying to know the unknowable. We're trying to tell and predict the future. We're trying to read a mind. We are trying to also eliminate risk. We are trying to make the perfect decision. We're trying to achieve certainty in what we're doing. And a lot of times, that's not necessarily possible. Certainty and certainly telling the future isn't necessarily possible all the time. It can be tempting to want to know the unknowable, to look into the future, to be able to project what all of the eventualities are going to be of making this decision. But a lot of times it's just impossible. And there's a level of acceptance that has to happen for us to become comfortable with that. And so we end up weighing the pros and cons, right? We weighing pros and cons is smart. It's it makes sense. It's diligent. It's responsible. But putting off decisions when you're weighing all of this stuff in a very analytical way, when the analytical side takes over and drives you over and over and over to kind of continually rehash the conscious part, the analytical part. It can be bad, right? I mean, here's some examples. So booking a flight, right? You wait too long to book a flight, it's going to cost you more money. Maybe the flight fills up. It could be, a, you know, if you're making an investment, you're purchasing a stock, the price rises, or you want to go to a conference and suddenly all the conference tickets sell out or the hotels sell out. Maybe there's a deadline on a course or a mastermind community that you want to join and it closes and you were weighing it in your head just a little too long and you lose that opportunity. It could be a lost business opportunity. So maybe you're, you know, you're thinking about doing an entrepreneurial startup and there's this white space in the market where your invention, your idea is going to like command this new white space and you wait and suddenly someone takes your spot. I'm actually working with a company right now. It's a transportation startup, and I can't go into it because I'm under an NDA. But this is a revolutionary sort of mode of transportation, and it, it is a huge white space in the market. And so this entrepreneur is moving very quickly because, and they're having to make imperfect decisions as they go through this because there's a white space and people are moving very quickly into taking up that room. So. Let's talk a little bit about the second part. And this is the, the most critical part, the paralysis part. The thing you have to understand about paralysis part of analysis paralysis is that paralysis is involuntary, right? So paralysis as defined is an involuntary thing. But the thing about analysis paralysis is that that sort of paralysis is a choice. That is deciding not to decide in a weird way. Not deciding is a choice that you are making, and it has cost, time cost, opportunity cost, mental toll cost. And there's a little, there's a little quote that I actually came up with when I was doing a video, I think about four or five years ago, and I really like it. <laughs> if fear of failure is the mother of procrastination, then perfectionism is the father. 
analysis paralysis is very often procrastination, pure procrastination. You're just saying, oh, I'm working on it. I'm thinking about it. I'm weighing it. And the fact remains is that you're not doing anything. You are essentially just procrastinating because no decision is perfect. You're actually just doing nothing. And in many cases, because of these costs of indecision, doing something is better than doing nothing. And one of the things you have to remember is that indecision is very often, very often fear-based. What if X happens? It's this projection. It's this projection into the future, trying to know the future. And we can't know the future. We can make informed choices, we can gather the data, and we can weigh the feelings, but we have to take those feelings and that level of fear of the future into consideration and be very, very conscious of the fact that that's what it is. Sometimes naming the fear, naming the procrastination, naming I'm trying to tell the future can take the power out of the spin. It can take the wind out of the tornado and settle it just enough to be able to get some clarity. And this leads me to one of the hacks. So I want to talk about one of these hacks. One of the hacks that I've used, one of the analysis paralysis kind of aspects of my life where it's manifested in my life has been around financial things. And sometimes making investment decisions, sometimes making choosing you know, one salary over another or deciding how much to charge for my business or how much to spend for my business or invest in something. And one of the ways I have used is to imagine worst case scenario. Here's what happens to people a lot when they get stuck in analysis paralysis or the fear-based aspect of making a decision is that they go to if I do that, I'm going to end up as a bum on the street, right? Does this sound familiar? When you're like, I'm going to end up penniless on the street. I'm going to be in a gutter eating cat food. So you go from like making the wrong decisions about which job to take or how much you're going to charge for your designs and you catastrophize it. So you take it to the absolute worst and it's debilitating and it's absolutely ridiculous actually when it comes down to it. And so this is the hack. What you do is you actually Take your decision and you imagine absolute worst case scenario, okay? So, for instance, you say, I'm not doing a great job on this design at the company that I'm working on. What if I get fired? And so you're having to make a decision about the design that you're working on or the presentation that you're making, and it's spinning you out of control and you're saying, I'm going to end up like a bum on the street. And so, to a certain extent, what you need to do is take it through every step. So. I screw up the presentation, I get fired. Okay, I can find a new job, right? Okay, I don't find a new job. What happens then? I can't pay my rent. Okay, so I have two months I can go without paying my rent. And within that period of time, I can probably pick up some freelance work or something. So I probably eventually make my rent. So what if I don't? And then I get tossed out of my apartment. Right now I'm tossed out of my apartment what happens then? Well, I've got family. I have a brother. I have a sister. I can move in with my parents. I have a couple friends. I can sleep on the couch for a couple months, right? So there, there are 
you're not on the street yet. All right. So then everybody, no one, you know, will let you sleep on the couch and your parents say you can't move back home. What happens after that? There are all sorts of, you know, kind of support systems within the government that you can do. There's what I'm trying to get across to you guys is that if you take a bad decision and you imagine it through step by step to worst case scenario, and you realize in that process how many places where you have an out before you end up eating cat food on the street. So it's a hack, basically, like taking that decision and walking through worst case scenario of making the wrong decision and what could happen. And 99% of the time, what could happen in the worst case scenario will never happen. And again, what that does is it takes the power, the, the mental turmoil, the mental anguish out of the decision because you're disarming it. You're basically anti-catastrophizing it, right? Imagined fears rarely happen. And that will, as a hack, help you get through sometimes decisions which can be very problematic or ones that send you spinning a little bit. Now, here's hack number two. Hack number two, there's a guy named Eckhart Tolle. He wrote a book called The Power of Now. If you haven't read it, you should. It's one of the probably top 10 books of my life that I've read in terms of having an impact on my business and myself personally. Eckhart Tolle, very smart guy. He says that you must think of over-analysis as an addiction. And just like procrastination can be addictive because it protects you from having to do anything or to make a decision or to move forward, it has its own pain as a result of doing that. But looking at over-analysis as if it is an addiction, just like it is procrastination is an addiction, is a way of disarming it, is a way of putting a limitation on the projection into the future. So it's taking you and keeping you in the present. The decision that you're making, what you're weighing, and what you have to do in order to move forward. It's a level of controlled thinking. So looking at analysis as an addiction is a way to zoom out, is a way to look at yourself in, from more of like a Petri dish sort of, sort of way. Like I'm looking at myself and my bad behavior as addictive you know, behavior in this Petri dish in front of me, and I'm looking at it as a bad experiment. Like it helps you zoom out and stop the cycle, stop the tape loop in its process. All right, let's get into the nitty-gritty now. This is the seven-step process. You guys ready? You ready for the seven-step process of how you go about making a decision? Number one, you limit the choices. You have to reduce choice overload. Having too many choices contributes to confusion and swirl and spin. The fewer the choices, the easier it is to make the decision. So you need to create filters or criteria around limiting the number of choices or limiting the number of factors that are going into the decision-making. So look at your decision, but be very finite about it and also be very clear about what are the criteria that you're going to weigh that are going to contribute to this decision. Okay, so limiting the choices, number one. Number two 
is that you want to time box it. You have to make a decision around when you're going to make a decision. You're going to decide when you are going to take action on this. You're going to put a stake in the ground sometime in the future that you're going to be able to work towards, but you're making commitment to yourself that you're going to make a decision by this period of time. Now, some decisions, like whether you're going to a conference or not, there are time bounds. So that the time period where you have to make the decision is set for you. But there are a lot of decisions that we do every single day, which are not time bound. And it can be very helpful to set a time period, a time box for yourself where you have this time box in order to work this thing through and make a decision to move forward. Use calendars. Put it on your calendar. I'm going to decide by this date. Set an alarm on your phone. You can use apps. There's also, you can use an, if it's a quick decision, you're choosing a font for a design, set an egg timer, set a timer on your phone and you make a decision by that period of time and you move forward. So step number two is time boxing. Step number three is gathering the facts. So you're limiting your choices. You're time boxing it. This is what I'm going to work within. Number three is you're gathering the facts. And the thing you have to realize about gathering the facts is that you will never have all the facts. <laughs> this is a very important point. Gather the facts, get all the data, pull it in, write it down if you have to. And I actually find the hardest decisions, it's really, really helpful to write it down because it keeps the swirl from your mind ping-ponging all around to a million different things all the time. You can see them and you can weigh them in your head. You want to time limit the info gathering too. So within that time box, the info gathering is a part of it. So you're putting a time limit on the info gathering too, but part of one of the ways you can kind of get through that is to realize that you will never have all the facts. No one has all the facts. And one of the facts is, is like what will happen in the future. No one has that fact. No one can know what will happen in the future. So the ex radical acceptance of accepting that fact helps you put a time limit on gathering all the information that you can, that is knowable. All right, step number four. Step number four is pros and cons. And like I said at the very beginning, when I was sharing this example of my having these three, this was so unusual and it was so amazing actually in my life to have these three job offers on the table at exactly the same time that I could play off each other. And I actually did play them off each other for salary. You got to be careful about that. But you want to make a pro and con list and put everything on it within the limit of the amount of data that you're weighing. It makes abstract decisions or decisions that are very complex, more tangible. And here's one of the key hacks of doing this pro and con list is you want to weight them. You want to add weightage. You want to just rank them one through five, the most important aspect, the least important aspect. So as you're looking at them and evaluating them, you're understanding that not every piece of data, not every piece of thing you're analyzing has a similar weight to it. Some things are really more important than others. And putting in black and white in columns, two sides of a piece of paper, and adding some weight to it can really help focus you in and stop the mental swirl. And then you also want to pay attention to how it feels. And again, this is like what I said at the very beginning about creatives, is that we, we see things in gray. We are very emotional beings. We have a tendency to, you know, kind of feel things more than some people. So 
you know, the right brain types feel things, I think, more than the left brain types. And so you have to kind of like, as you're looking at that and weighing it, you have to say, what's the gut? Like a lot of times you can make an analytic decision. And then when you come down to it, you're like, what does it ultimately feel like in my gut? And, you know, is it harder to create prose on one side of the decision than the other? Is it easier to create cons on one side of the decision than the other? Those things also in that process can be super telling and help you make that decision. Number five, and this is a really important one. Number five is you want to seek perspective. And seeking outside perspective from people that you trust is one of the best things that you can do in making any decision. And seeking different points of view can help you break through that tape loop. And you want to build a network of trusted colleagues where you have a level of respect for that person and they have a level of knowledge and understanding of who you are and what is important to you and your business or your personal life or whatever the decision is. So you've developed a deep enough relationship that you can, you can understand that they get you. They understand what makes you tick so they can give you some outside perspective of this decision in regards to you having to live with the results of this decision. And this is one of the most important pieces of breaking analysis paralysis is that you have to zoom out of yourself. You have to put it in someone else's hands for a little bit of perspective. And it really improves your objectivity in the decision. And it helps you recognize fears and really put names to them because getting that outside perspective. Also, sometimes when people who are in an outside perspective say, I really think that probably this is the right decision. And you go, and your stomach turns. Sometimes just hearing the decision from someone else that you were weighing or consciously thinking about, suddenly you understand that's not the right decision or that is the right decision, right? Sometimes those outside perspectives are all you need to really get in touch with like, what is the right thing to do? Now, the next thing, number six, is pilot testing or MVD, which is a minimum viable decision. If possible, you can pilot test things. Try to test out a decision before completely committing to it. Some decisions you can't do this with, understandably, but if you could run a small test project, you could do a beta test of something or prototype something that you're developing or a decision that you're making or try it out and say, Sometimes minimum viable decision can be this, and this is kind of another hack, which is say, okay, of these three jobs, I've decided I'm going to move to Oregon and I'm going to get a job with Nike, like the story I told you right at the beginning. And you go, that's my decision. And I'm going to live with that decision tonight. And then you sleep on it. And then the next day you go, I feel really good about that decision. Or that decision is not sitting well with me. So sometimes you can actually play act making the decision. And if it's not something that you can actually prototype, you can actually try it on for size. And that is also another thing that kind of works with getting an outside perspective. And then finally, step number seven is mentally minimizing the downside. You have to understand and accept there's this level of radical acceptance again, right? That few decisions are actually really perfect. Few decisions are final. 
proposing to a woman or a, a man, significant other, to be your spouse, that's a kind of a final decision. Actually, it's not. Drive down the road, 50% of marriages break up after 10 years. So very few decisions are absolutely final and no one can see the future. You may feel that that person is your spouse for a lifetime, but then 10 years later, it may be different. So remember, doing something is better than doing nothing because in many cases, the decision can be altered, can be shifted, will shift because the future changes at the same time and no one can see the future. Okay. Now, I want to talk about something that fits into this whole analysis paralysis thing. And it has to do with that idea of developing trusted colleagues and also getting perspective. And I ran a series of masterminds a couple of years ago called the Brand Design Masters Guild. And they were 10 person masterminds and they ran for 12 weeks. And I ran four of them in a series of 12 weeks after each other. And they were incredibly successful. And the thing about it is the people who were part of them and took part in them, every one of them at the end of the 12 weeks said, I wish this thing wasn't ending. And so at that time, I said, I am going to develop a mastermind community that doesn't have to end. It's going to be a membership community where people can get the benefits of a deep mastermind relationship, build trusted you know, relationships with trusted colleagues, meaningful network relationships. And so I'm starting a membership community called Bonfire, and it's for established creative professionals. So if you're, you know, just in college and just getting out of school and just building your portfolio, looking for your first job, Bonfire is probably not for you. It's people who are five plus years into their career where they are either looking to get promoted or they're looking to go freelance or they're looking to start building a personal brand. They might be pivoting from agency to corporate or corporate to agency or either of those things to being independent. You could be mid-career and looking you know, at the timeline of what the reality of is being a creative professional in the industry these days where we all have a time stamp on our head in terms of ageism and preparing for that eventuality. You could be building deeper, more meaningful parts of your agency, partnerships, starting to offer brand strategy growing your creative practice, your personal brand, your skill set, your knowledge. And so that's what Bonfire is going to be about. And it's going to have live coaching from me. We're going to do bi-monthly Zoom calls where it's going to be a group coaching mastermind experience. And there's going to be a private online community on the Circle platform where only members are going to have access to it. It's not like a Facebook group where anyone can Zoom in. And that is also, because it's a membership community, not going to have the kind of restrictions or rules that a Facebook group can sometimes have. And it also is going to, as I said, help you develop these deep level accountability partners where you can get the kind of trusted perspective that you need to make decisions in your business. And that's one of the things, I'll just pause right there. That's one of the things that came out of the guild that I was really surprised by when I interviewed people coming out of those mastermind sessions. Like, what was the biggest thing you got out of this experience? And to a person, people said confidence. And that kind of blew my mind. It, confidence in decision-making. And I hadn't thought about that in terms of being one of the hugest benefits of masterminds, but it really is when it comes down to it. It's having built meaningful network relationships with people that you trust that can get to know you and your business 
So they can give you really meaningful feedback on the decisions that you need to make. And you can also do that for them. And that's one of those things that really can, if you struggle with analysis paralysis, this sort of experience is one of those things that can totally, totally reconfigure your life and your business. Also in Bonfire is a success map called the Fire Milestones. And I'll go into that a little more deeply. We're going to bring in expert guest speakers periodically. There's a deep resource library full with playlists and checklists and workbooks and downloadable assets that I've been building for months and months. And that aligns tightly with the FIRE success milestones in that process. So as you're looking at your development in your business, you'll be able to find where you are in that milestone map and get the assets and the feedback and the direction and the accountability that you need to move forward at a much faster pace with a lot higher level of confidence and certainty in your decision-making. And then we're also going to have access to Brand Strategy 101. At the membership level, get it? Bonfire, Embers. I thank Peter Lewis, who's probably in the chat for coming up with that. I got to give him props for that. So at the membership level, which is the monthly membership level, where you have to purchase, it comes in quarters, you have to purchase quarterly, you will have discounted access to Brand Strategy 101. At the guild level, which is the tighter, elevated level of Bonfire, you will get free access to Brand Strategy 101, and you actually will get ongoing direct support from me to implement that within your business. And the FIRE Milestones, it's an acronym. It stands for Foundation, Ignition, Reach, and Expertise. You may be halfway you know, through, your, maybe a 40-year-old creative director, but there may be aspects of building your personal brand where you're just in the foundational aspects of it. So this milestone map can flex, right? It's not necessarily just the foundation of like, I'm building my first website, I'm putting together my first portfolio. It can be an aspect of your business that you are building the foundation for or lighting on fire or you know, expanding the reach of or building your expertise in. So the success map is really handy depending on what you are, actually kind of what your priorities are in your own personal or your business development, right? It's very flexible. And then there are, as I said, a huge range of assets that are within Bonfire that are aligned to those FIRE milestones. And these are downloadable assets, checklists, playlists, guidebooks, you know, I share case studies, et cetera. And there are different sections for the FIRE milestones. There's a chat section. There's an introduction section. There are, you know, obviously community guidelines. One of the cool things about it is that there is a mobile app, so you'll be able to access Bonfire on the go through your mobile device. And there's, you know, very clear instructions on how to go about processing or evaluating where you are in the FIRE milestones and how to get started. And so if you want to learn more about Bonfire, I encourage you to go to philipvandusen.com slash bonfire and you know, read through all the specifics on the page. There's also a couple of videos on the page and click learn more and sign up to be alerted when the doors open, which is going to be very shortly. It's going to be in less than a little more than a month. And so sign up and you're not purchasing right now, but you're putting your hand up and saying, Hey, I'm interested. And um, I'll be getting in touch with you and sharing more information about it. It's going to be an incredible group. And I have 
I've done the due diligence of running a number of masterminds that have contributed to the idea behind Bonfire. And let me just explain where the name Bonfire came from. There's a quote by Eckhart Tolle that I can't say totally off the top of my head because it's a long quote. But essentially what he said was that whenever you have a log that's on fire and you put a log next to it that's not on fire, that log put next to the burning log can't help but catch on fire. And when those logs are eventually separated, both are burning fiercely. And so that is like, the when I heard that story, that's the perfect analogy for bonfire. There is a group where there are people who are on fire in different aspects of their business. And if you are looking to catch some of that fire, when you bring people together in that kind of an experience, people can't help but catch on fire. There's something that I experienced in doing this that I think is pretty phenomenal, which is what I call kind of mirroring, where you know people learn things that they experience and see things that other people are doing in their business that they had no idea existed, or they had no idea that it was something that they could do, or that could benefit their business, or that it would be even something that they were interested in. And that's one of the super cool things about these groups, is that you get exposed to things that can benefit you that you never thought that you might have actually even wanted to do before. And then you have this cool, deep, meaningful network relationship with someone who's actually doing it already, and you can get guidance from them about what the first step is, what the pitfalls are, what the benefits are, and hear about it from that person who's doing it. So it's just an absolutely incredible experience. So I encourage you, check out philipvandusen.com slash bonfire. And if you're at all interested in this sort of experience, and I don't know why you wouldn't be, masterminds and investment membership masterminds have transformed my business. And when I went independent from being in corporate about eight years ago on to being on my own, this was the transformative experience. I mean, I had 30 years of experience in the industry, but when I went on my own, I didn't know about personal branding or email marketing, or I, I wasn't doing that at a gigantic corporate level. I wasn't publishing content. I wasn't doing a newsletter. I wasn't building an email list. All these sorts of things. I learned what was possible and I learned and connected with people who were doing it and being successful with it in a mastermind community. And it accelerated and I caught on fire. I was a log who was not on fire and I caught on fire by being surrounded with people. And I have deep, meaningful network friendships and relationships with a number of people in that group still to this day incredible experience. So that's the kind of experience Bonfire is going to be. So I really invite you to come and check it out. So from what I shared with you in this live stream, you can tell that I'm super passionate about the power of mastermind communities. And that's because participating in masterminds helped me break through to a whole new level of professional accomplishment at a really critical, pivotal time in my career. And masterminds also helped me build deep, meaningful network relationships and gave me the motivation and the accountability to build the personal brand and the business that I have today. So I really want to share that power with you too. So if you're interested in finding out more about it, just go to philipvandusen.com bonfire and sign up to get alerted for when we go live. Again, it's philipvandusen.com bonfire, B-O-N-F-I-R-E. And I hope to see you beside the bonfire. If you'd like to help support the Brand Design Masters podcast, 
please rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, if you want to stay up to date on all our content, products, courses, and live video shows, head over to philipvandusen.com slash muse and sign up for the Brand Muse newsletter. That's where we share all the latest news, resources, articles, books, and videos that we recommend to help you build and improve your creative practice, personal brand, and business. That's philipvandusen.com slash muse, M-U-S-E. Thanks again for listening. Bye for now.